0: I mean, we all deserve to feel like we can find joy in the learning experiences, which comes from really trying to understand ourselves and learn more about ourselves through that reflection and those passion projects, those lines of inquiry, learning how to be resilient when the learning is hard and finding joy in that resiliency. A framework of the pedagogy of play has played a really big part in our
1: learning design. Education Uncharted is a show from Propello, a K-12 teaching and learning platform that helps districts and teachers give every student a first-class learning experience. I'm your host, Amanda Bratton, exploring the stories of courageous educators that have broken out of the status quo to chart new paths and boldly innovate in the ever-changing landscape of education. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Dean, Head of Learning at the Village School in Virginia. She has 15 years of experience in various roles in public schools as a high school English teacher, department chair, and instructional coach. Having earned a doctorate in educational policy and leadership, Elizabeth is bringing a fresh perspective to the classroom by embracing a student-centered approach to teaching and learning. Dr. Elizabeth Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so looking forward to chatting with you and learning about the work that you are doing in your school and to lead the charge in growing students and the work that they can do to become leaders. So I wonder if you could start by just telling us a little bit about your background, what sparked your interest in education to begin with, and then tell us a little bit about what motivated you to continue learning about some of the innovative approaches to teaching and learning that you are applying now.
0: I was raised by a group of really fierce educators who actually spent the entire time of my childhood telling me just to be anything I wanted other than a teacher. If you know the laws of the universe, then that was sure thing to ensure that I would do exactly what they told me not to do, which was be a teacher. Uh, and they didn't give me that advice because they were unhappy in their own career choice. It was just my mom and her friend's generation. They just didn't have as many options as I did. And the young women of today have. They really wanted me to explore all of those options. But my mom taught for over 45 years. She taught everything from elementary grades, art. She taught it all. And her friends were all school teachers, school counselors, school principals at all levels, high school, middle school, preschool, and they played a really big role in my development and my growing up and what I saw in terms of what it meant to be a strong, brave, intelligent, powerful woman. And so obviously, I didn't take their advice and I decided to pursue a career in education. And I think something that differentiates me from the reason why most people become teachers is Although I had this really strong group of women who were influencing me to be an educator, I actually didn't have a great educational experience. My elementary years were wonderful. And as I grew older, middle school, high school, it just was okay. It was fine. And I did not have that wonderful teacher who really saw something in me where I felt like I had a deep connection with As I was in grad school, I would always sit back in awe of all of the other peers in the room that would say, you know, oh, I'm here because of Miss so-and-so, or I'm here because of Mr. So-and-so. I knew as soon as I left their classroom that I wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't have that. And actually, my motivation for going into education was to be the kind of teacher that I never had. And I think that from my experience, that is something that sets me apart. So I feel like I've always come to this calling I really feel like this is a calling, being in education, with that kind of lens to change the narrative, to change the experience that, as a teacher, I wanted to make something different than what I experienced. And that has helped me lean into these new ideas that maybe aren't so comfortable for people who were really validated and had a wonderful experience
1: in the norm. I'm sure that you may feel that you're the minority in that space, but I have to imagine there are plenty of people who have entered into education or some realm of the educational world in order to solve a problem that they experienced as a learner. I think that that absolutely touches a nerve, especially with me. I was that kid. Now here I am in educational publishing in ed tech. And I was the kid that caught the mistakes in the textbook. And I was like, what are these people doing? I'm going to do better, right? And it was one of those things where I think that we could do better. And so I hear that and appreciate it. So I know that your doctoral dissertation focused on understanding more about student voice. And that really makes a lot of sense based on the story that you've just told us. And you dug into how school leaders could include students in the leadership of their schools. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found?
0: Yes, my own educational experience, particularly as a high school student, really inspired what I ended up studying for my dissertation. And really what I found is that there's a kind of a misunderstanding of what student voice actually is, student voice leadership actually is. Many times it's misunderstood as something that is the term voice and choice is extremely popular. And I would say even like oversaturated. Oh, we're providing voice and choice, which is wonderful. But student voice really is much deeper than the literal, like providing students a choice of what book to read or where to sit in the classroom or just even listening to a student present something. So student voice means something beyond just literally hearing the voices of young people. In the literature, it's all about that act of co-creation where young people, older people, teachers, people are all sitting. I always visualize it like everyone's sitting at a round table, everyone on an equal playing field, trying to create a better school, trying to create more, improve the teaching and learning that is happening in their school um, school communities. So it's really all about that co-creation. I would say even beyond just collaborating or working together, it's really creating something together where everyone has equal footing and an equal say. So a great example of that would be like many times in my research, I heard all about the student governments as an avenue for student voice leadership. Many times student governments aren't really tasked with co-creating the teaching and learning. It's more of this creating those social opportunities on the side or hanging up posters to advertise a football game or a homecoming dance, which are all really important parts of a young person's school experience. But it's kind of like that's its own separate lane where a lot of adults feel comfortable, like allowing kids to have voice in that lane. And then when it comes to the actual academic or the learning part of school, we seem to be a lot more uncomfortable with that voice and choice. My research really focused on, well, it showed that there was that big gap in understanding, but also the many times of student voice leadership, that real act of co-creation was only available to kids in that after school social aspects of school and not an actual like owning their learning experiences, which I would like to think is just as important <laughs> as the social aspect too and could complement
1: each other really well. Absolutely. And if we're looking for student engagement in the classroom, not just at school or in the school building, that's a piece that we need to consider. Yes, for sure. And I would say in a place where the
0: students really feel like they have voice or feel like they belong, it goes so much beyond engagement. Really, they feel empowered and they feel some kind of ownership over they're learning. Engagement is great, but I would say we want more than that. We want them to really feel like they're a part of it. That deep sense of belonging that can come when they actually get to co-create with the support of not only their peers, but the adults in their lives too. So
1: tell us what that looks like at the village school. How does a classroom at your school differ from what our listeners might be used to in a traditional classroom? Or school-wide? I mean, we don't have to isolate to the classroom if you want to talk about the entire ecosystem, however you want to go about explaining what you do at the village school.
0: Yes, learning at the village school looks a lot different than what you might see in a more conventional space. And I would say there's a couple of things that really stand out that help to create the kind of space where the learners are co-creating their learning experience. Our whole learning design is really based on that constructivist approach that my job as the adult or the educator in the room is really to create the opportunity for the young people here to make their own meaning of the experiences. So I know I don't have all the answers and that they are out there on the other side of those doors learning things that I don't know about. They could teach me much more. And I come to work every day knowing that I am far from the expert in the room and that I really want to help create the opportunities where the learners are walking away with some new ideas, new understanding. And that is my goal. And I don't know what that new understanding is or might be. So just really trusting all of the young people age four to 14, that they own their learning and what they get from the experience is most important. What that actually looks like is we have mixed age classes. We have pre-K, kindergarten, first grade in one class. And then we have second, third, fourth, and fifth. And then our middle school right now is sixth through ninth. And the benefit of mixed age learning is that it really is real world. We're not out here in the real world, like organized by our age. Thank goodness. I have learned in all of my jobs in schools, learned so much from the teachers that have had more experiences than me and the young teachers as well. As I get older, the you know, newer teachers that come in have new ideas and perspectives. So I, as a person in the world, really value my ability to work with people of many different ages. And the same goes for the learners in our schools. There's not just one teacher in our classrooms. There's many. And part of the culture is that they don't have to look for the adult to ask a question, that they really lean on each other. And when you have that mixed age environment, you really see that happening. And then we have opportunities for our classes to collaborate together. For example, our middle schoolers and our youngest learners have specific times during the week where they come together. And I think that this happens in more traditional spaces where you might have a reading buddy in an older class who reads books to you as you're learning to read and so on. So, really, that mixed age classroom that allows for the learners to learn as much from each other as they do from. An adult, And then we have mastery learning. We're really concerned about each learner's individual growth instead of comparing the learners to one another, focusing the learning plan and learning experiences on how did this one learner grow from the beginning of the session to the end or the beginning of the year to the end of the year instead of comparing their academic success to one another. In a mixed age classroom, that's wonderful, too, because they are all at different places in their learning. Some of them are different ages working on the same math, different ages reading the same types of books, and they can get a lot out of that time and space to collaborate on those things that they have in common. We also build failure in. So we expect kids to fail and then use that as the learning experience and work really hard to not. Rob them of that experience of failure, even though it can be really hard as an adult watching it happen. And our families are really big partners with us on that because as parents, it's also hard to watch your child struggle, but realizing that it's all a part of the process. I would say just that constructivist approach really takes hold in that the mixed age classrooms and the mastery based learning. And then our partnership that we have with parents to really be on the same team helping to support their learner with whatever they might need.
1: I feel like what you're saying here is that you've built a framework to allow for cooperative, multi-age, multi-generational learning to take place, right? It sounds like your plan is we've built this framework to make it a safe place, But then how do you then let that freedom ride? Like, what is it that you are suggesting happen within the classroom to actually get that learning done, to be able to see that growth? How does that play out? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say self-directed
0: learning is really messy. It's not clean and neat and tidy. And that's actually, I think, a good thing. It's really human and humans are messy. We are flawed and we're all trying every day our best, right? I think what you're really asking is about just maybe what it looks like in the day. Like, how do we have these ideas? They seem so beautiful, but what is it? How does it look and how do we maintain it? And so a lot of times when we describe our school, people think that it sounds like it's just so much freedom. And the learners here do have a lot of freedom. They also have what we call a lot of guardrails. So it's freedom within structure. And some of those guardrails are each of our classrooms has a contract that the learners themselves work really hard and take really seriously to create. It's an aspirational document. It's not upheld 100% every day, all the time. And we actually appreciate when the contract is broken, because like I said, that's an opportunity for learning. We're not perfect all the time. We're going to break that contract. And how are we going to work together and repair when the contract is broken? So that contract is one of those guardrails. Our learners have a badge plan, which is our version of a report card or a learning plan. They have a lot of choice within that badge plan. It's their roadmap of lets them know what they need to do next. They get one badge and then they pick a new badge to work on. So that really helps them stay focused and directed in terms of what goals they're setting for themselves when they get to school. And then we also have community meetings a couple times a week across all of our classes or studios, we call them. And those community meetings are really a place for the learners to come together and share what's going well and then refocus maybe and brainstorm solutions for any problems that might be impacting the studio. That could be anything from the way that kickball is being played during open play outside on the playground to the studio maintenance system that they have implemented is not being followed and there's things are a mess or maybe not everybody's cleaning up. That community meeting is really a place where we all are working on learning to live together, which is a big part of our profile of a learner. So that's another place for accountability and one of those guardrails that we have. And then our schedule. The adults that lead the studios, lead the classes, they are in charge of setting that schedule. And the schedule really dictates how the time in the day is going to be spent, how much time the learners have to work on their individual goals, what time is going to be spent on the project that the learners are focusing on for that session, their lunch, their free time, at studio maintenance time. Those contracts, the schedules, the community meeting, those really help to keep the guardrails on and give the learners the structure that they need to then plan out their day
1: accordingly. It's so different from what we see in a traditional school, but it sounds like with those guardrails, students can really be successful. I'm wondering what you can tell me about how the inquiry piece of your school operates why does it matter to your students and what does it do for their outcomes yes curiosity is a big part of just being a part of
0: our entire community so we're always curious and we try to approach our learning design but also just approach our learners with curiosity I wonder why you made that choice or I wonder what's going on here So the inquiry-based is a part of our learning design, but just also a part of how we approach humans and ourselves, too. Being curious about ourselves, right? One of my favorite quotes about inquiry-based learning comes from somebody named David Copperwriter, And he says, we live in the world our questions create. And I love that quote so much because I really think it speaks to what we're trying to do here with that value of curiosity not only for learning, but also for the young people in our school community. We always say we are more concerned about who our learners are becoming than what they know. And that really starts with being curious and the inquiry. We just care about who they are, not all the facts they might know or not what they can do. The way that we build our learning is really focusing on what questions we can pose to the learners and then We're really excited about the questions that they'll have at the end of the session. What are their new questions? And most of the time, those questions at the end of their unit or at the end of their project that they've done reflect all of that learning. They're much deeper, much more serious, much more introspective. They might have a new question about something that is happening in the world, but also we hope they have a new question about themselves and what they've learned about themselves from the experience and really letting go of the content focus and leaning into the skill development, the character development of that learning helps to do that, which I know can be really hard, especially as young people get older and that we're more siloed usually in our content in the middle and high schools. Like I'm an English person or I'm a science person and it's hard for us English or science or math people to let go of that content and lean into the more meaningful part of the learning that The learners will remember from the experience years how they felt, what they learned about themselves or those big questions that were emerging about the world that we live in. I think that inquiry-based learning is really important because we live in a really complex world where there are way more questions than answers right now. And it's our moral obligation to prepare the young people for that world. They need to be comfortable asking questions thinking of new perspectives, new ways of looking at things, because we need them for the future. I'm counting on them. That inquiry-based piece is so important just for them to feel they can go out and contribute and be a meaningful citizen in this world that we have that are full of questions. And I want to live in the world that those really
1: powerful, deep questions create. I mean, I think that quote is fantastic, by the way. If you think about it, if you meditate on that quote, you really start to get into some deep questions about what world are we living in and how can the way that we teach and educate our children affect the world that we grow into? I wonder if you could share what you think might be some practical steps or strategies that schools that maybe are looking a little bit more traditional than yours So schools or districts, how can they bring some of the strategies that you are employing into their own district, into their own school, into their classrooms? How do we start with inquiry or how do we start with giving students more of a center? We all know that blank page is the hardest part, right? The getting up in the morning to do the workout is the hardest part. The beginning is so difficult. And just having a couple of practical steps can be the launching pad to some really great discoveries. I'm wondering what you think there.
0: Yes, I really believe that there are some really practical things that any teacher can do anywhere, in any context, whatever school they're doing, that can really tap into the inquiry-based or even constructivist approach, or just to really honor the young people in their classrooms, which I know is the goal of every teacher and education. We really care about these young people. And that's why we're doing what we do every day. And the first thing I think that can be done anywhere is just taking the time to focus on reflection in the classroom. I think it's John Dewey's quote about reflection. You don't know what you learned unless you reflect on it. And that's often the first thing that goes in the busy schedules of a more traditional large school where there's a lot of kids to move from one place to another and you're tight. Your schedule is really strict. You might not have the flexibility that other smaller schools might have. A lot of time, and I've been that teacher, we have the bell rings. We we missed the time for reflection. But that's probably the most important part. Also, as the teacher, just being really curious about what the young people in your classroom are really learning and taking away from the experiences. So just really protecting that time for reflection. And reflection is hard. It's a hard skill. Metacognition is tricky. And critical thinking is hard, too. That's why we don't like to do it. Just tell me what to think or tell me what to do so I don't have to use that, you know, my brain. I think just protecting that time, creating space and whatever schedule you have to pause. And practice that skill of reflection. What was the most meaningful part of this learning for me? What would I do differently if I had this to do all over again? What do I think I'm going to remember from this in five years, in five months? What would I want my teacher to know if they were going to do this learning experience again? What was the best part of it for me? What really helped me? What do I wish there was more time for? most importantly, like, how did I grow as a human? So maybe I learned a lot of science or I learned about this book in English, but what did it teach me about myself? So just creating that space so that really the learners realize what they learned from that experience too. That's something that I wish I had more time for in my own life. As I'm saying this, I'm like, I really need to do that for myself. It's the first thing we let go, but it's the most important thing. And for someone creating those learning experiences or projects can be really helpful as you design and craft whatever comes next in your classroom. So just protecting that time and being flexible with learners like they might need to talk about it or before they write about it. I think reflection can come in different forms. Helping them develop that skill. What a gift. So that's one thing. And then anytime uh, you can find a place to put some project-based learning where there isn't maybe one right answer and it's interdisciplinary and feels like your learners have a chance to step into the role of a professional is really powerful and can feel like a novel experience. I think something that we do at our school that it could also be replicated is we keep our project, whatever our project focus is going to be, we keep it a secret until the first day of the project and it builds an incredible amount of anticipation amongst the learners of all ages. It's genetics or it's simple machines. It's nothing revolutionary, but just the fact that it's a secret until the big reveal creates a ton of interest in those projects. So the project-based learning is really a great stepping stone. I know so many teachers in all types of schools are really doing well and leaning into That always is a great place to start when it comes to inquiry-based. And then something else that teachers might consider is creating some kind of space for a passion project or like Google's 20% time. It's what we do around here on Fridays. That's the learner's time to do their passion projects or their work on a skill they want to work on. So it might be crocheting, learning a song on the piano, Making a music video, learning coding, doing some geocaching, making a skateboard ramp, learning a new chess move, just creating a little bit of space in your classroom for learners to follow their own curiosity and their own lines of inquiry can be
1: really powerful and really fun. I'm hearing this thread of tying learning to emotion across everything that you're saying here. And we know that learning is an emotional act, right? You can't really learn and integrate something into your schema, your understanding without having tied some kind of emotion to it. Yeah, I mean, I think just pulling all of these pieces together, recognizing that all of the strategies, all of the little, here are these hints and tips and tricks of how you can do this in your classroom. They all have this red thread of connecting to who we are as a person, and the way that we respond emotionally to those things. When you work that piece in, where do you go with that in terms of how you steer your classrooms or how you build those guardrails, thinking about the emotions that are tied to learning?
0: We rely a lot on that pedagogy of play. Learning should be joyful and learning should be fun. It should be hard. We should all have a chance to Learn in our challenge zone, not our comfort zone or our panic zone, but that challenging work that we really feel like it belongs to us or that we're a part of. There is a joy in that that is really important. Joy is an important part of our school culture, not just with the young people, but also amongst our team of educators. Something that we put out there at the beginning of this school year was this quote There's no time wasted in joy. And I cannot remember who said it right now, but anytime we get that urge to lean towards that hyper overproductivity, remembering that joy and playful learning is also really important. And it's not just for the four and five and six year olds here at our school, that playful learning is also important for me and the adults that work here, too. And really important for those middle schoolers and the third graders. I mean, we all deserve to feel like we can find joy in the learning experiences, which comes from really trying to understand ourselves and learn more about ourselves through that reflection and those passion projects, those lines of inquiry, learning how to be resilient when the learning is hard and finding joy in that resiliency. So, yes, I think that A framework of the pedagogy of play has played a really big part in our learning design in all of the learning, not just the passion projects, but in the way we deliver science curriculum, like there should be some elements of play. And then my favorite way to describe the pedagogy of play is that when the young people in your classroom want to be doing what you, the educator, want them to be doing. And that is the sweet spot of the pedagogy of play. That's what we're aiming for. We Definitely don't hit it all the time, but that's
1: the goal. Awesome. All of these things are super exciting. I want to hop into a classroom and start applying all of this right now, but I could not. I wouldn't know where to start. What are the supports that teachers need? What are the resources or training opportunities that you think could help jumpstart some of this in a classroom for educators who are interested in some of the methods that you talked about? I think any teacher can
0: maybe just take time and start reflecting on their own experiences themselves, because we know the kind of learning experiences we have as the adults, the learning designers, are the same kind of learning experiences that we're going to feel confident in creating for the young people in our classrooms. For someone like me, who, as I said at the top, I didn't grow up in a school like this And I didn't teach in a school like this for a long time. I worked in public education before I came to the village school and worked in a self-directed learning environment. I had to seek out my own kind of deeper learning experiences, continue to try new things, take a pottery class. I haven't played with clay since I was in elementary school, continue to put myself in the position of a learner. And then take the time to reflect on how that felt, just to stay attuned to what it feels like to be a young person constantly being asked to learn something new, which is a really hard task. So just starting with yourself, I think. I know we want to rush to do something in our classrooms, but really, I think this work starts with ourselves and giving ourselves a chance to feel like a learner in one of those experiences. So I challenged you to go try something new. Sign up for a painting class or a pottery class or just go on a hike if you've never been on a hike. Just do something new and then reflect on it. How did you feel? Were you scared? Did you want to quit? What did you do to keep yourself going? Start with yourself. And then I think really just trying to connect with other educators who are interested in pursuing this kind of work in their own classrooms, that community is really important. I know we have a great network here and, you know, we're trying to connect with other teachers in other contexts who are doing this type of work that are focused on student-led inquiry, learner-centered education. There are so many little communities popping up all over the country that are really inspiring to connect with. So just finding other people that want to do this work with you. And then I would say just trying to find time or space to go visit a school that is just different than yours. Sometimes just getting out of our own typical classroom, normal routine can be so helpful in terms of just finding some of that inspiration and finding a learner-centered school around. It's going to look probably different than a typical school experience, but that doesn't mean, like I said, there are pieces of it that you could bring back. You're all invited to the village school anytime. It's really fun. Notice that all the kids seem so happy to be here. And I never get tired of hearing that or seeing that because that's how it should be for everyone, right? We should all be excited and happy to go somewhere and learn.
1: Dr. Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. We have learned so much in this short little bit of time about remembering to bring things back, reflect on what we've learned, and allow space for students to take that reflection to the next step and how they can apply the experiences that they've had to the new experiences that they'll create for themselves. Thank you again for spending some of your time today. I know that today is your day for students to be out there doing their passion projects. So I want to give you a moment to get back to it. But thank you again for everything. And we will absolutely stay in touch and see how things are moving with you and let us know how you're doing. And if you have any updates that you want to share, we're happy to share them for you. Thank you so much for having
0: me. It's wonderful. What a great way to spend Friday morning.
1: Wow. I don't know about you listeners, but after that conversation with Dr. Dean, I think I may be moving to Virginia to try to attend the village school myself. After giving myself a bit of time to reflect on the conversation, there were three key concepts that kept coming back for me. Trust, belonging, and curiosity. First, trust. As educators, we must trust that students know what's best for their own personal learning journey. We trust that they each bring valuable skills, knowledge, and perspectives, and that everyone in the room, even the educators, can benefit from this. Number two, belonging. It's crucial that as leaders, we support every student in developing a deep sense of belonging in and ownership of their learning, allowing for every voice to carry equal weight. This in turn helps build a sense of safety that allows for students to experience and embrace failure as an opportunity to learn. And finally, curiosity. Dr. Dean shared with us the quote, We live in the world our questions create. Just think about that for just a minute. It really sums up what we as educators are all trying to do. Create curious, lifelong learners that actively question, create, and collaborate to solve problems and build a better world. I'm Amanda Bratton. For more conversations with bold educators exploring uncharted territory, click the link in the show notes or visit propello.com backslash learn to learn more.